Welcome everyone. Today is Friday, April 4th, 2014, and today we're going to be talking about hearing loss in mitochondrial disease. And joining us is a special guest from uh, far away for us in the U.S. He's Dr. Peter Kular, who is a clinical research fellow at the Wellcome Trust Research Center for Mitochondrial Disease at Newcastle University in the U.K. And Dr. Kular, I understand that this hearing loss and deafness in mitochondrial disease and mechanisms of mitochondrial deafness is a real research interest of yours. That's correct, yes. And we're really excited to have you uh, take us through what mitochondrial deafness looks like and to learn also about the really interesting and exciting research Mm -hmm. that you're doing with Dr. Chinnery, who many of us uh, admire as well. So, uh, mm-hmm. Dr. Kular, on behalf of the entire mitochondrial disease community, thank you so much for donating your time today to talk about this, and uh, we can go ahead and get started. Well, thank you very much for, for inviting me to speak to you today. Yeah, so as, as Christy says, um, we were talking about hearing impairment in people with mitochondrial disease. And just to sort of, from the, from the outset, say what I'm going to be talking about, um, I want to give a general overview of of, of hearing in, in, in normal individuals um, and then to go into how this can go wrong in people with mitochondrial disease. So we look at the different possible causes and then I want to focus really on, on different treatment options, uh, what we can actually do for people who have hearing impairment. Uh, a quick um overview of the current research and particularly my research which I'm particularly interested in Um, and then as as Christy says we'll be able to take some questions at the end. Perfect. Go ahead Dr. Kular. Okay. Okay. Right so um, everyone's pretty familiar with with the external ear um, and uh, that that doesn't need too much more explanation, but where the problems in mitochondrial disease occur tend to are to be in the internal part of the ear. So we divide the ear into the external part, the middle ear, and the uh, inner ear. Now the inner ear uh, consists primarily of the cochlea, and um, this can be seen in my second slide. So that's deep inside the bone of the skull encased in bone and we think that this is the main area where um, mitochondrial disease affects hearing. My my third slide shows um, the general view of a um, of an eardrum um, as observed from from the outside world um, which is very common commonly seen in sort of uh, ENT, ear, nose and throat practice um, and um, often seen by family doctors. So hearing is, is a core uh, sense uh, in all people and um, the way it, uh, the, main, the main mechanism of hearing is the conversion of uh, sound waves into electrical signals and this happens in the inner part of the ear in the cochlea. So my fourth slide shows um, the, the the sensory transduction, the way that these sound waves are converted into nerve signals. So within the cochlea, in the inner part of the ear, uh, there are um, cells called hair cells. Uh, and when a sound wave um, reaches these hair cells, um, it causes them to, to move, and this movement is then converted into electrical signals by a, a very um, complex mechanism. Mitochondria are um, the powerhouse of the cell, as I'm sure we are all familiar with, and they're important for controlling um, cellular uh, respiration and energy production. And uh, I, my focus of my research is looking at how diseases of the mitochondria, so changes in, in mitochondrial function, ultimately lead to hearing loss. Now, the way we uh, classify hearing loss is either sensory neural or conductive. Now, to take you back to the anatomy of the ear, uh, conductive loss is anything 
which stops the sound waves traveling from the external part of the ear to the cochlea, where uh, sound waves should be translated into nerve signals. So this may be commonly seen with uh, glue ear, what we call otitis media with effusion, where the middle part of the ear is filled with fluid and, and it's blocked. And this we don't see commonly associated with mitochondrial disease, although patients with mitochondrial disease may have um, conductive losses uh, just because uh, they are common in the general population. And people with mitochondrial disease also have diseases which are not caused by their mitochondrial uh, problem. The majority of um, hearing loss, uh, or should I say all mitochondrial hearing loss, is actually sensorineural hearing loss. So that we classify as changes within the cochlea or within the nerves leading from the cochlea to the brain. So um, it's also important to understand that the problems with the mitochondria and mitochondrial dysfunction um, are also uh, important in um, hearing loss associated with older age, uh, which is very common and increasingly common in the general population. So my research, although it is focused on people with mitochondrial disease, um, it has broader implications um, for the general population so mitochondrial disease, um, there are numerous types resulting from changes um, in the mitochondria's own genes, its own genetic code, or in changes in the genetic code of the, uh, of the rest of the cell and the cell nucleus, which are code for proteins, which are uh, mitochondrial proteins. So there's two possible ways that mitochondrial uh, so genetic changes can cause mitochondrial disease, either changes in the DNA which is found within the mitochondria or changes in the DNA which is found outside of the mitochondria, but it um, causes uh, changes in proteins which are targeted, which are transported into the mitochondria. Uh, the, um, the, the These changes in, in DNA and, 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 and the subsequent changes in the proteins um, have a quite a complex um, relationship with the actual um, manifestation of the symptoms. So there isn't an obvious relationship between the changes in the genes and and the phenotype or the the symptom the symptoms that the patients actually um, experience. And um, therefore, we see a great deal of variation. Uh, in the disease between patients and in also within families and these patients may share the same genetic codes and have the same changes that what we call the same mutations within their DNA but they have very different symptoms so it may be possible to have one particular mutation one particular change and not have any disease or any hearing loss whereas um, your sibling may have the same code, genetic code but have very severe symptoms Hearing loss um, can be one of these symptoms when the genetic code is changed, but it also may be part of a wider spread syndrome or, and a, or a wider spread number of symptoms. So overall, um, of mitochondrial disease, um, probably two-thirds of people with mitochondrial disease of all, of all different types have some degree of hearing loss. But that's interesting that one-third of patients with mitochondrial disease don't have hearing changes. And what leads to this, um, the differences in the symptoms that people have with the same genes is, is part of my research. Um, and as I say, there is a great variety and variability of um, of hearing um, loss which are actually within families and within um, between uh, different patients, and this can this uh, can result in very mild to prof to profound deafness. Ultimately, the hearing loss um, results from problems in the energy generation in the mitochondria, and um, this causes dysfunction within the hair cells found in the cochlea and um, 
changes within the ability of the, the uh, cochlea to transport sound waves uh, into nerve, single, nerve signals and to be interpreted by the brain. There is some um, research that shows that uh, there are changes within the, the nerves specifically, but this is still quite hotly debated. And we think with most, with most uh, mitochondrial disease, the changes are within the cochlea itself. Uh, affecting directly affecting the cochlear hair cells. So, um, to sort of the workup of a patient uh, coming to a clinic with hearing loss um, in the in the UK, um, patients tend to be referred to an ear, nose, and throat, an ENT clinic, um, or an audiology clinic for for clinical workup. Um, they will then routinely perform um, hearing tests using audiometers, so that's what we call a pure tone audiometry. Um, it's, a, it's a simple test to do where there is a range of um, sounds played to the patient in a seal, sound sealed booth and the patient needs to uh, press a button if they can hear the sound and this varies over different uh, loudness levels and different frequencies and is able to generate a a graph of how the um, patient performs uh, called an audiogram. And these typically um, have a very um, typical, so these have a typical appearance in patients with uh, mitochondrial disease where oftentimes they lose their high frequency um, hearing preferentially over the low frequency. And this tends to be symmetrical between both ears. So both ears have a similar level of high, high tone loss. There are other more specialized uh, tests which are also done, um, such as autoacoustic emissions, um, which measure directly the hair cell uh, function in the cochlea, and also um, what we call brainstem electro tests, where you're, you are able to fix um, electrodes onto the outside of the skull and non-invasively measure the uh, nerve nerve signal generation. Um, however, these aren't so routine in, in, in general clinics, but they do give a better understanding uh, where the um, changes uh, causing the hearing loss um, are, are, are occurring. So looking further down the line and looking at what we can actually do for patients with um, hearing impairment um, and looking at treatments. So the primary uh, treatment at the moment um, are hearing aids and most um, patients with mitochondrial disease who have hearing loss will be, use, be users of hearing aids. Um, there is also um, the option of cochlear implantation because as these patients primarily have good uh, ha have problems with the cochlea, replacing that directly with an implant can have great benefits. So I wanted to look a bit more in detail about uh, what hearing aids are and how they can help. So a hearing aid uh, is an ele electronic battery-operated device uh, that amplifies and changes sound to allow for improved communication as a sort of general um, definition. So a hearing aid is made up of a number of different components. Um, it has an external microphone, uh, an internal amplifier, which... Um, increases the, the intensity of the of the sound which is then received um, by the cochlea and there are three basic types of uh, hearing aids um, the conventional hearing aid um, increases the volume of the sound um, with only minor ad adjustments over all frequencies but then there are the more um, advanced digital hearing aids which um, allow uh, more tailored um, frequency boosting and, and tend to have a much better um, clinical outcome. So the, these different types of hearing aids um, come in, in a number of different styles. Um, in, in the UK, uh, provided on the, on the National Health Service, most hearing aids are of the behind-the-ear type, which probably people are quite familiar in seeing. But then new advances... Um, are the inner in the ear in the canal and the completely in the canal, and these have uh, advantages um, to, and disadvantages as well. 
So the, the most common type of hearing aid that patients um, with age-induced hearing loss or, or in this case, mitochondrial hearing loss have are the behind-the-ear uh, ear aids. And these, as, they, as the name sort of says, um, are worn behind the ear and, and then connected to a plastic ear mould which sits into the um, external part of the ear. Um, all the important components, such as the microphone and the receiver and amplifier, are, are sit, sit behind the ear, which does leave it quite exposed. Um, but um, they are extremely powerful in their signal boosting, and so they can be used for people with um, severe to profound hearing loss. Uh, but they are also useful for people for, for more mild loss. The other aids, which I mentioned before, the in-the-canal aids and the completely in-the-canal aids, are often perceived to be more aesthetically pleasing because they're less um, obvious to to, um, to, to the passerby and other other people. However, the the major disadvantage with these um, hearing aids is that they haven't got the same um, ability to boost sound, so they can only be used for people with much milder hearing loss. So we tend to, in clinic, like to have people using the behind-the-ear aids as that gives, tends to give the uh, best results. In in the UK, and I understand that it's different in the US, um, with we we have socialised medicine, and we have the National Health Service, which do provide um, free care at a point of access and able to provide hearing aids uh, free of charge. Um, but there are also, also people that use private um, hearing aids, and there is some debate about who, which is better for, for patients. Um, oftentimes, patients want to get the smaller hearing aids uh, because, as I mentioned, they are more pleasing and, to them and more aesthetically pleasing, but um, they have to, it has to be taken into account that they're less signal-boosting. But um, we, we don't provide these, and we don't provide these types on our National Health Service. There are a number of problems which you can have with uh, with hearing aids, um, and that's the number one problem that patients have is is uh, are, is feedback from the aid. So this is sort of interference because the it's not calibrated, and patients often have to bring their hearing aids back for recalibration. Although once pay, uh, the the um, digital aids are calibrated correctly, this tends to be less of a problem. It's also possible to um, to get infections because of the plastic ear mold sitting within the canal can cause um, problems with hygiene and keeping the ears clean. Um, although, again, once once they're, they're well-fitted aids, this tends to be less of a problem. Patients also find that uh, they don't like wearing hearing aids uh, for cosmetic reasons, but um, I think that this is more of a societal issue because... Uh, Many people wear spectacles, and so there's no real difference between that and um, wearing hearing aids, and that's the message we try and reinforce to our patients. So I mentioned before that um, although hearing aids make up the, major the mainstay of, um, of treatment with patients with their mitochondrial and with normal um, age-induced hearing loss, um, there is the option to perform cochlear implantation, um, and this... In, in selected patients has extremely good results. So I just wanted to mention the, the major differences between hearing aids and cochlear implants. So hearing aids um, acoustically amplify sound. Um, so they take the sound and they boost it um, externally, delivering that signal to the cochlear through, a, through um, just through a... Um, um, a sort of standard method of, of sound boosting. However, the cochlear implants um, bypass damaged hair cells. So hearing aids boost the sound, but you need to have an intact um, hair cells within the cochlear to have any um, any good response from them. However, so with the cochlear implants, because we are actually replacing the function of the cochlear and directly stimulating uh, the the hearing nerves, um, this can be very um, good results for patients who have severe loss because they've lost almost all function of their their inner ear, their cochlear. So the cochlear um, converts the acoustic input signal um, into an electrical impulse and 
to a microprocessor which sits externally on the on the skull, and then this is fed through um, electrodes directly into the um, cochlea, which then are able to stimulate directly uh, the hearing nerves. However, um, this does involve a, a, a an operation um, and destroys the any remaining ability of the the, the native the, un, uh, the 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 patient's native cochlea to function. So it is it is an undertaking which shouldn't be taken lightly. There are a number of different uh, criteria for. Um, suitability for the cochlear implantation and patients must have a severe to profound hearing loss to to, to qualify for um, cochlear implantation and they must only again have tried um, hearing aids and have a limited benefit from them um, ultimately it's the patient's choice um, but patients who do have severe hearing loss and communication issues are often very um, very keen to proceed with this. It must also be taken into account that this is a, a, a lengthy operation, oftentimes in the round of three to four hours, um, and patients with uh, mitochondrial disease may have um, other medical problems which um, may make, make having anesthetics and operations difficult for them. Um, also, in, with all surgical operations, the patient's age must be taken into account. Um, and uh, again, the most, probably the most important thing, once patients do have cochlear implantation, is um, assessment of how motivated they are to um, start using them. And in most cases, this isn't a problem, but it must be bear, bear, um, borne in mind that once the implant is fitted, it's not the end of the story. There's a lengthy uh, a post-operative period where uh, they must be uh, the patient must learn how to to use them. So the the assessment um, workflow for cochlear implantation. Um, firstly, the a specialised hearing test, as I mentioned before, the pure tone audiogram is undertaken, which which must show a profound loss. And then there are some more um, specialised tests where speech in in noise and speech perception is tested. So patients that have particularly poor understanding of speech are, are particularly um, qualify for, for, for the implantation. And, and patients undergo quite detailed uh, psychological counselling um, to make sure that they have um, the right expectation of the procedure and that they understand that although um, they will have improvements and oftentimes great improvements in their ability to understand um, verbal communication. They, they may not have uh, perfect results. Um, the operation itself, um, as I mentioned, is a three to four hour procedure and there are risks involved which must be borne in mind. Um, one of the major, major risks is um, or an absolute definite is the fact that once you have operated on the cochlea, any natural hearing of the native cochlea is, it will be lost. Um, so um, if the cochlea implant becomes infected or is lost for certain reasons, that may result in, in a worse hearing state than, um, than the patient had before surgery. There are also small other risks which um, include injury to, to the nerves, particularly the facial nerve which controls um, function of the face which runs very close uh, in the inner ear. And uh, patient can also experience pain and numbness around the operative site. Um, there's also chances of having other um, disturbances of taste um, tinnitus, which is ringing in the ear, or dizziness because um, the balance organ uh, is, sits very close to where the um, cochlear implant is um, sighted. Patients also must remember that uh, after operation, um, they mustn't have MRIs because they, they have metal uh, inside their skull, which um, doesn't react well with magnets. So as I mentioned before, after the surgery, that is really the, the, the beginning of the journey rather than the, uh, the start of it. And patients have um, a, an, a um, four to six weeks um, period where um, they have to um, 
allow the um, inflammation and uh, the, the, the the implants to, to settle in. And then from then, um, a period of rehab um, is undertaken with, on regular follow-ups to, to fine-tune the, the cochlear implant. And cochlear implants have been fitted in mitochondrial patients, and the first recorded case was in 1997 in Japan. Um, and actually, it's our feeling uh, that cochlear implants um, in mitochondrial patients uh, are, are a very good um, treatment, and mitochondrial patients can actually make ideal um, patients, particularly in those where hearing loss is actually their only symptom, and uh, where this hearing loss is a progressive hearing loss which has occurred after um, the development of speech, so-called post-lingual deafness. So these patients really do benefit greatly from cochlear implantation. Um, the, the results in mitochondrial patients are quite variable, uh, but as um, technologies of the cochlear implants improve, so that, for example, the number of electrodes stimulating the the auditory, the hearing nerves in, in increases, the, the results seem to improve. So um, just a brief brief bit about my uh, research. So um, I'm interested in, um, in, um, in, in, in mitochondrial hearing loss and I'm interested in how mitochondrial disease uh, causes different types of hearing loss. So I'm, what I'm doing at the moment, um, because I am a, a clinician, I am a doctor, um, an ear, nose and throat doctor, I'm, I'm working closely with the audiologists to perform hearing tests in patients with um, all different types of mitochondrial disease uh, and to find out really if our understanding is right in that the primary, primary loss of hearing is, is within the cochlea. So we're performing the pure tone audiograms in, in a number of different um, mitochondrial diseases to ascertain that, and then doing some further um, nerve studies in, in selected patients. I also have a specific interest in the A1555 mutation, which is a mutation in a mitochondrial gene um, which predisposes to uh, hearing loss after um, treatment with antibiotics, particularly gentamicin, um, and this this mutation also causes um, hearing loss uh, without antibiotic use, and in the so-called non-syndromic hearing loss, so it has no other features. So it's quite an interesting um, condition because mo many um, mitochondrial mutations have um, many different symptoms, but this one has only hearing loss. So what I'm trying to do is dissect out why. Um, this mutation, this genetic change, only affects um, the cells of the ear, the cochlear cells. And um, as part of that research, we're very interested hearing from patients who who have 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 become deaf after antibiotics or have uh, this confirmed uh, genetic change. And I've provided my email address on on uh, on the presentation slides if anyone would like to uh, get in touch with me. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Kular. And just to follow up on that uh, before we open up for questions, uh, are you interested in patients who also have uh, deafness, which had the onset perhaps after their mitochondrial disease diagnosis, but they don't know if they have the gene, or really only interested in hearing from patients who know that they have this particular mutation? Yeah, that's, yeah absolutely. Um, Primarily, I'm interested in patients um, who have this this known mutation. Um, we, we we actually have um, a very uh, large number of patients with mitochondrial disease in our um, follow-up from our, in our local cohort. Um, so we do have a number of pa different patient diseases. However, this this mutation is is quite is quite a bit rarer, uh, and therefore uh, it, it has been harder to track down patients with it. So I would be particularly interested in hearing people um, who have, have that mutation specifically. And tell us a little bit more about, you know, what if if you could fast forward a couple years and you had completed the study, what types of findings do you hope to to know from that study, and and what would how would that benefit the community from what you find? Sure, sure. I'm I'm, I'm really interested um, in understanding. Um, 
how um, what really why there is such a variability in patients with that specific mutation. Um, so as I mentioned, they patients may share the same mutation but have very different hearing levels or very different symptoms. So we're doing um, a this, this clinical study to just to be more systematic in understanding all the different hearing levels patients have with the different mutations. And then we're doing genetic studies where we're trying to do um, look for mon the molecules uh, which underlie these changes and whether there are particular cell signaling molecules which are, are changed in patients which have the deafness and those which don't have deafness. So our ultimate um, goal would be to um, find a cell, a cellular signaling molecule, a, a protein um, within the cells, which which is different between those with bad hearing and those with good hearing, and that might be amenable to uh, a drug or some other form of, uh, of chemical change, uh, which could then restore the hearing levels. Fantastic. It's so interesting, and you know, uh, we're going to take some questions, but I just want to encourage everyone who's listening that this is a, a non-invasive, easy way for you to contribute to the field of advancing mitochondrial medicine, and it leads to not only greater understanding but potential therapeutics also. So uh, I do encourage patients who, um, who have this mutation or who have questions to uh, reach out to Dr. Kular. And obviously, if you don't know of the Newcastle Group, it's one of the most well-respected mitochondrial centers in the world. In fact, the clinical trials that are going on now use the Newcastle scores as part of their criteria yeah. to make measurements, which are been developed by people in that group. So truly, it's an honor for us to have you join us and share that information today. Well, yeah, thank you very much. And I speak on behalf of Newcastle, but uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's an honor for you to say that. But yes, it, there's lots of very good work, which is undertaken by some excellent researchers here, and particularly my, uh, my, my supervisor, uh, Professor Chinnery, who coordinates the things uh, here, who does a superb job with patients and, and with his own research. He does indeed. So um, I know we'll have some folks who want to ask questions, so I'm going to open up the lines. I am going to ask everyone that if you're in a place where there's background noise, we will hear it. And if you are talking to someone or there's kids or whatever in the background, we will hear it. So use star six, please, to mute your phone if you think that that might be a problem, because I'm going to open up the lines for everyone and we'll take some questions. So bear with me just a second. Okay, so just again, a reminder, you can use star six to mute and unmute your phone if needed, but uh, I'm excited to take some questions, and if you prefer, I can ask your question also on your behalf. You could email that question to me, director at mitoaction.org. So who has the first question that they would like to ask? Well, I guess you covered everything, Dr. Coulard. <laughs> okay. okay. Um, Julie, um, I could ask a question. This is Julie Gertzi. Um, hi there. I really hi, enjoyed Julie. this talk. And um, I can ask this question. I'm an adult patient, but I was diagnosed with bilateral hearing loss at the age of seven. Mm -hmm. I wear hearing aids, and my hearing loss has decreased from mild to severe over the years. But in the past year, there's been a new thing going on that's really kind of confusing me because sometimes I actually feel like it's my hearing aids, that there's something wrong in my hearing aids, that there's a short. My hearing aids have been fine. So it's almost like my hearing goes in and out sometimes. And that's very, very new for me, and I just am not sure what to make of it. Mm. I wonder so, if you have any thoughts on that. So, so, your, so your hearing aids have been checked and they're, they're okay? Yeah, yeah, my hearing ears are fine. Right. Um, do you have any other symptoms? You mean um, ear-wise? Of your mitochondrial disease? or Have you got a confirmed mitochondrial oh, diagnosis? Well, with the mitochondrial disease, yes, I have a lot of things. You know, I have the optic neuropathy, I have GI issues, mm -hmm. I have tremors, I have, you know, I, um, the list goes on, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and what and what what do you actually just to pin it down exactly what the changes of the hearing are? So if your hearing aids are okay, what 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 do you actually uh, perceive as the problem? 
The problem would be like with my hearing, it does. It seems to go out. It seems to, there'll be times like I'll, my hearing will definitely be worse. Mm-hmm. And I'll even go and change the battery and mm-hmm. nothing will be, like it'll still be that my hearing is worse. Mm-hmm. And then it'll seem to come back a bit. And it, it's just weird. It's almost like the hearing itself is coming in a lot of times. I know oh. that happens with the eyes, but and I was told that's because the eyes are active so that, uh-huh. you know, your eyes can be more blurrier than times, but uh-huh. I didn't understand that to be with the ears and that's what's thrown me off after I, 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 I think, in fairness it, to me, it's, it's a very difficult question to answer um, uh, in the, on the specifics of what's going on and I don't think there, I would be able to give you a very satisfactory answer to that, but Similar to, to to what's happening with your eyes, with 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 the variability, I should imagine it's the same process really with your ears, because there are a number of of, of variables and, and and places where there can be changes where from from how the sound is getting to the cochlea and how the cochlea is then uh, transferring those sounds onto the brain, and there's so many different p- places where that that uh, translation could go wrong or, or not be quite right um that it's very difficult to pin it down exactly where it's going but similar to um your eyesight hearing is a very dynamic process and a very active process so it 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 does make sense that there would be times where um you you're not hearing quite as as well as 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 others even though there isn't actually any um, organic reason for that there's no actual change but um, hearing depends on so many other factors such as your concentration your level of fatigue um, just the general um, way uh, that you, you're feeling in yourself really does influence these things so um, I think that's the only actor the sort of answer I can really give you but uh, I'm not quite sure is the basic answer <laughs> okay but, you know, I think I, I do think that's a very good point in that I think one of the things that confuses people I know about vision loss in mitochondrial disease is that they expect it to be uh, what happens in the typical population, which is that, you know, it's kind of, it, it may be gradual, but once it's gone, it's gone, and you have a static, mm-hmm. you know, vision. And and that may not be the case for patients with mitochondrial disease. It tends to be much more erratic, mm-hmm. right, just like other symptoms do. So it's really interesting to me to hear you say that the hearing loss can be erratic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's very important, actually. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, generally, we, we the pattern of hearing loss that we see um, is symmetrical, so both ears affected equally. Loss of the high tones, so loss of the, the particularly the speech uh, frequencies, uh, and it tends to be progressive hearing loss. So, uh, as as you mentioned, your hearing loss was diagnosed as a child, but got worse as you got as an adult, and that's that's very common. But um, so that's a general trend of things. But within that general trend. The, the day-to-day fluctuations are definitely possible, and um, those day-to-day fluctuations may be due to a number of different variables, um, just as any dynamic process is. It's really interesting. So thank you so much, and thanks, Julie, for being yes, brave and asking the first question. Who else would like to ask a question? Hi, Hi. I'm a Julie also. Okay, go ahead, Julie. Um, and I? I have a question. I have two children with presumed mitochondrial disorder. They both have some hearing loss. My older son is only in the upper level frequencies. My younger son is 14, and he now has hearing aids because at 3,000, he's got a pretty significant loss. Right, yeah. And it's increased five decibels over the last six months. And I was wondering if you can talk about, you know, is there a pattern to it, or is it just very erratic and there's no guessing if he'll be deaf in a year or if it'll be mm-hmm. there's just no way to know I th- so does just for just a little bit of more information does he have a he has a diagnosis a mitochondrial diagnosis do, do you know the diagnosis he has you know what we've done a lot of testing he's got an oxfos defect and he carries a bunch of different things we're doing the whole exome sequencing right, oh, right. now yes mm. um but they've got central sleep apnea they've got a lot of problems gi problems um mm. Just a lot going on, sure, and um, sure. but this is really it's it's going faster than I guess we expected. Sure, sure. I, I mean, I think uh, a, a wider point uh, that you sort of, I, I'd like to bring out from what you say um, is that obviously patients with mitochondrial disease do have a number of symptoms. 
the the problems with hearing, although may on the surface appear not less less more more trivial than some of the more severe problems, actually can affect patients on a day to day basis extremely badly because uh, it really interferes with communication um, and and functioning within society. So uh, I think that's just something I'd like to just pull out of what you said. But um, to answer your question. Um, Ultimately, it's it's extremely variable, and and that's really what we're trying to unpick with our research at the moment. That patients um, can have uh, a specific gene change uh, and have no disease, whereas their sibling can have the same gene change and have severe hearing loss. And and whether and what what factors are um, causing that, um, we're still uncertain. Um, ultimately, there may be uh, different genes involved or there may be um, changes in their environment which aren't shared between the siblings. Uh, for example, other other traumas, like dr- other different drugs or different noise exposures. But it can, it's quite a, a complicated relationship between the, the patient's gene type uh, and the uh, hearing levels that they actually um, experience. So the way that uh, your, your son's hearing uh, is changing and, the, and its future course it's difficult to predict even once you have his exome data, once you have his gene gene type, you may be able to get some information on, on a general trend, but on a on a um, on a on a uh, the basis of just one person, it, the, the even knowing their gene type, difficult to predict um, or impossible to predict how how their hearing will change over time. I have another quick question: Will the yeah. whole exome sequencing show? If that gene is changed that you're talking about, um, y- yes, that that most exome data. Um, so the exome uh, for patients, people who don't know, what exome data is is a new um, way of uh, is a, a next generation sequencing, which is basically getting the whole genome. Um, Sorry, let me just rephrase this. The exome is the important part of the genome. Really, it's the part of the genome which. Uh, codes for proteins and the proteins which are responsible for the cell mechanisms. So whole genome scanning um, is very uh, cost and labor intensive because it takes a very long time it's still at the moment, whereas the exome focuses on really the, the important part of the genome, which is a quicker, but actually mo- because most changes do occur within the the exome it can pick up a lot of disease uh causing genes um so the um the exome data is um primarily focused on the nucleus so the 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 dna outside of the mitochondria but most um dna chain and uh, most um, exome companies also sequence the the mitochondrial genome so the um the mutation which I am interested in, this A1555G mutation um, in a mitochondrial gene, will be picked up on that exome data. And can you have a mutation in that and still be symptomatic other than the hearing loss? I didn't quite understand in your presentation. Or would that be mutation simply that is it for? So the way the mutation works is that um, it's a change um, in a mitochondrial protein um, and um, it, it causes sensitivity to uh, antibiotics. Um, once these antibiotics are given, the the um, the, 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 the cochlear cells um, die, and uh, the hearing loss um, is um, symmetrically um, and non-progressively lost. From uh, so, most times the the mutation. Um, is asymptomatic until antibiotics are given, although there are cases where antibiotics haven't been given and patients still have hearing loss with this mutation. Once the, once the hearing loss has happened, uh, the hearing doesn't recover. Thank you so much for your answer. I really appreciate it. Okay, thanks. Super, uh, and we have time for a couple more questions, Dr. Kular. This is fantastic to have this opportunity to ask them. Oh, no problem. Uh, so someone else was asking a question right at the same time as Julie, so I'll give the floor to that person. Uh, are you, if you're still with us, go ahead and ask your question. Uh, it was me. Um, okay, go ahead. It, it was me. It's Jean. Hi, Jean. Um, is there a typical audiogram for the uh, tight mycene loss? And 
this is this is not myself. This is my husband. He had streptomycin used uh, post a unilateral radical mastoidectomy. Oh, and right. Was said to be allergic to streptomycin. Right. Uh, his audiogram shows bilateral sensory neural loss right. at uh, 50 to 60 dB up to 1,000 hertz. Yep. Then down to 95 to 110, it just crashes down through yep. the high frequencies. Sure, yes, that, that uh, was bit exactly right. Yeah. An A115G loss. Oh, right, yes, yep. Well, that, that that's very interesting and uh, a very typical story of... Um, of 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 how this uh, mutation can affect people. So I'm sorry to hear the, y- y- your story, but that is um, that's very interesting to me. So your your husband received uh, streptomycin, which is uh, a similar drug to gentamicin in the same drug family, um, and uh, because he had this underlying genetic change in one of his mitochondrial proteins. Um, that caused uh, this bilateral hearing loss. So he actually lost hearing in both of his ears, uh, as opposed to the one which was operated upon. Um, so yes, that's. Uh, and how is his hearing now? Uh, well, this is this this is uh, an audiogram. It was his first, and uh, both the uh, audiologist and myself. And I have experience with um, uh, teaching the deaf, so uh, I had no idea that he had that kind of hearing loss. I knew he had some, but not to the extent mm-hmm. that it is. He obviously is lip-reading uh, up a storm. Right, yep. Should right. he be tested for the A155G loss? And if yes. so, uh, where and how? Sure. Um, I think from, from from the clinical story, it sounds quite possible that he does have this uh, this change. Um, whether the the cha- whether actually knowing for um, for definite is of, of help to him, uh, because ultimately at the moment um, there isn't any further different treatment that he could have. But um, for uh, in an academic sense, it be, would be very interesting to know that this was this un- under underpinned his hearing loss. Um, as, as regards the um, uh, where to get the test, uh, in the UK, um, that, that test is provided on the NHS within our UK genetics network. I'm not familiar with exactly how you would uh, seek this in America, but um, my feeling would be that there would be uh, independent private providers um, of, of that test that um, if provided with a DNA sample or a, um, a blood sample from your husband, they could... Um, sequence that gene and, and uh, give him a, a definitive answer whether he has that uh, mutation. He has a, a high gain in the ear, um, or it's just sitting in the um, in the ear, ear itself. It's not down into the ear canal, um, and uh, he's having a great deal of difficulty getting used to it. Hollow sound and, and sure. uh, uh, lack of lack of. Um, uh, mod- modulation, I guess. Sure, sure. I mean, it's, it's a very common pe- problem, people having difficulty getting used to their hearing aids. Um, and it can be a, a long process of, of, of for to get the right uh, frequency tuning and modulation, as you mentioned. Um, I, I can only... Um, Say that he should approach his audiologist for for, um, for help with that um, because with m- almost all patients it is actually possible to get good um, good response from, from hearing aids until they have a very very severe loss. Well, thank you. Uh, I have one more question, if you don't mind. Sure. Okay. Um, uh, there are at least three families that I know of in North America who have a diagnosis of mitochondrial disease and Wardenburg syndrome, not type 1. Right. With heterochromia, the white forelock, and several me- members with um, moderate to profound loss. Mm-hmm. Has there been a relationship between Wardenburg syndrome and mitochondrial been established? Um. I'm not familiar with a with a with a role of the mitochondria in Wardenburg syndrome. Forgive me, but uh, Wardenburg syndrome 
one of you know has specific genetic changes which do lead to and hearing loss is part of that syndrome i'm not familiar whether there is a uh, a mitochondrial link there um how interestingly uh, mitochondrial diseases and uh, have been associated with skin changes and pigment changes which are similar to that those found in Waterberg syndrome so um a proposed that that could there could be um some sort of similarity in, in mechanisms there but i'm afraid i, I can't give you any more information because i don't know the specifics of, of 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 if there is any link has been determined okay great questions uh, dr Kular, do you have time for one more question sure yeah okay uh, so who else would like to ask a question I've got I one. Have a quick question. Okay, it sounds like we have two questions, so we'll take them both, and uh, if we, and we appreciate that. So go ahead, the first one. Oh, hi, Dr. Kular. Hello. Uh, this is this is Lee calling from uh, Atlanta, Georgia, and I have a quick question. I have an mtDNA mutation, and both of my kids and myself have mitochondrial disease. Mm-hmm. Um. Um, is interfering noise and tinnitus an indication of hearing loss? Yep, um, that's a good question. Uh, tinnitus um, and understanding the mechanism of tinnitus is, is, is a very active area of research, and actually a very active area of research um, in Newcastle itself. Um, on an anecdotal level, um, most patients with hearing loss, whether they have mitochondrial disease or hearing loss associated with uh, any other cause, particularly old age, do have tinnitus. And, and the sort of general thinking of this is that tinnitus is a central process, um, process mm-hmm. actually within the brain rather than within the ear. So as the signaling from the uh, cochlear, from the from the inner part of the ear, decreases um, with, with the death and loss of these uh, hair cells, um, the, the brain acts as a, 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 on a positive feedback loop, trying to boost the signal, and it, it boosts it uh, over uh, the high frequencies, and that that gives that um, high frequency ringing sound, which people experience as tinnitus. So that's a very Wait. common uh, finding in patients with mitochondrial disease, and with uh, patients again with just with a normal hearing loss. Um, patients with mitochondrial disease also. Uh, experience other ear symptoms, particularly we call vestibular symptoms, so these balance changes, such as uh, vertigo, which is a spinning sensation. Oh, that's what I have, and I have severe problems. And as a child, I always have this severe tinnitus from time to time. I always have a background or interfering Uh noise, which I ignore Mm -hmm. in order to listen to everything. That goes on, but as I got to middle age, yeah. and my mitochondrial disease has um, gotten worse, and mm-hmm. I have severe, you know, balance issues, and I have dizziness mm-hmm. or vertigo or yes, exactly. something like that. But sure. I also have noticed that my husband even like, wow, you're turning the TV louder and louder, mm-hmm. and it's not that I cannot hear. I have to turn the TV louder or the radio in order to understand what people are saying. It's really Mm. both. It's like I cannot hear well, but I cannot also make up what they're saying unless if I, you know, bring it up. So, So what kind of specialist should I go? Because 15 years ago, Mass Eye and Ear in Boston told me that I had vertigo, but um they ruled out that I had any problems, hearing problems, but having more of those problems lately, and I, I've been much more sick this past five years than in the past. So where sh- what kind of specialist should I go sure, to? Sure. Uh, and it's a very important point that you raised that um, about with the, the different types of uh, ear symptoms that patients with mitochondrial disease have, but also these these symptoms are experienced by people without mitochondrial disease, and um, they they are best addressed um, by a combined um, ear, ear, nose, and throat clinic uh, with audiology support. Um, audiology so, support, okay. So yeah. I could go to Emory and get that, okay. Sure. So I, I understanding your balance problems, um, the mechanism is is. To my mind, and the, the latest research shows that the balance changes that involve changes in the 
mitochondria uh, involved in the vestibular organ, so in the parts of the uh, inner ear um, adjacent to the cochlea, which is responsible for balance control. And th- th- these hair cells within this vestibular organ undergo the same process. So that's most likely the um, reason for your uh, vitigo symptoms. Um, but getting okay. a full assessment would be uh, the remit of uh, ear, nose and throat doctor. Uh, then sort of going on to the treatment, that, that gets difficult with um, with balance disorders which are largely down to mitochondrial dysfunction because at the moment we don't have satisfactory uh, treatments. The, the most important treatment which we can give is what we call vestibular rehabil- uh, rehabilitation. So that's lots of balance exercises where the brain uh, is trained to compensate for loss of the vestibular organs. Uh, and they can they take over a number of months, but they can be very, very effective to sort of retraining your uh, sense of balance, uh, even though you've actually lost uh, the primary organ of balance, the the vestibular organ. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow, that, that's, that's really thank interesting. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Kular. And, uh, and, and our, one, our other, last... one other point, uh, sorry oh, to ahead. interrupt you there, Christy, um, but with the, with, with the tinnitus, because I know that can be extremely troubling for people, um, hearing aid, what we do for tinnitus, um, hearing aids are extremely effective at masking tinnitus sound. So because tini- uh, hearing aids boost the sound which is um, delivered to the cochlea, that actually has a very good effect at, at decreasing the tinnitus signal. But then there are a number of other lifestyle measures that I'm sure people um, find out for themselves, such as using um, masking music or masking sounds if they, um, the, the noise is troubling at night. And, and and in England, we are particularly fond of uh, telling people to use uh, pillow speakers, which is a small uh, pillow, uh, a small speaker which you put underneath your pillow, which can then place gentle music, which won't disturb your partner, or gentle sounds, which can help people mask uh, sounds if they're very troublesome at night. Do you think I can find those things in the U.S.? Oh, I'm, I'm, a- I'm sure uh, Amazon supplies the U.S. as well. Yeah, Amazon is is right our Amazon all of our our best friend. Yeah, yeah. Uh, great great insight there. Okay, this is our last question. I just want to uh, allow the person who was speaking it right when uh, Lee was asking her question as well to have a chance. So go ahead. Hi, this is Kathy from Baltimore, Maryland, and I'm calling about my 24 year old daughter. Um, when she was quite young, five, six, seven years old, she had intermittent one-sided sensory neural high-frequency hearing loss that was treated with steroids successfully. And she Uh had this intermittently through her life until she got into early adulthood and then the steroids stopped working and she started having more vertigo, ataxia Mm -hmm. symptoms. And the thing about her hearing, so now they're calling her Meniere's, and she actually does well on the you know, the low-salt diet and the, sure, the diuretics sure. with the Meniere's. Um, and they've said, well, this probably has nothing to do with her mitochondrial disease, which mm. I always think everything has to do with everything. Yes, yeah. <laughs> but but her, her hearing loss is intermittent. She can get never too normal, but she can get quite close to normal, and mm. then she can spike up into, you know, quite severe high-frequency mm. hearing loss. It's only mm. on one side, mm. so she's less disabled. Right. Yeah, with with this yeah. kind of of picture, is that just because they're so because you're involving you know the vestibular complex as well with the mitochondrial disease, mm. and that's why um, well, it can I, change yeah, like that? I, mean, I, I think, in in fairness to the clinicians who who've, who've been seeing your daughter, that sounds an extremely difficult puzzle to unpick. Um, mm-hmm. And, and, and it's important to recognise uh, that uh, people with mitochondrial disease um, also have diseases which aren't uh, caused by their multis- m- m- mitochondrial problem. But um, I can understand why um, it's easier and most likely correct to attribute um, the symptoms to the mitochondrial disease. But but then again, there are symptoms which are caused by uh, disease processes which would are, are prevalent in the general population and, and may be underlying some of the symptoms in your daughter. Now, given that um, she has unilateral, so one-sided hearing loss, that is that is quite um, atypical of uh, mitochondrial disease, where we normally see hearing loss affecting both the ears symmetrically, mm-hmm. because the the changes in mitochondrial um, 
genetics tend to would would have tend to affect genes in both ears and the proteins in both ears. Um, so I, I, there there is theoretical ways where it could be different levels within the ears, although it does seem quite unlikely. And and the fact that uh, that there is the uh, the the, the 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 other symptoms of uh, intermittent vertigo, uh, intermittent hearing loss. These um, these are quite suggestive of, of the Meniere's um, picture, particularly that she has good response from uh, the low salt and uh, diuretic treatments. Um, it's interesting that initially she was quite responsive to steroids. Um, whether I mean, there has been uh, steroids were given initially for treatment of Meniere's, and I don't think the evidence for for their for their use is particularly strong. But whether there was a, sort of an inflammatory process going on in her ears uh, at some point caused by either her mitochondrial disease or something else, which was dampened down by those steroids, which was then ultimately uh, became sort of too strong um to to for the steroids to dampen down which then sort of led on to the progressive nature of her problems but um I'm pleased to hear that she's uh, having good response to the treatment but uh, it it does sound like the there are sort of two diseases going on there okay no thank you it was a great lecture appreciate oh, thank, it yeah thank you. yeah and and what a great um comment Kathy I agree it was a great lecture you really explained uh the premise of the hearing loss that I think was helpful for a lot of people who sometimes with mitochondrial disease symptoms, it's there's so much that we have to learn about all of the different organs. And so having sure. that primer can be really helpful. So Dr. Kular, I want to thank you again. And, uh, and if you don't mind, I'm just going to say your email out loud as well sure. for anyone who sure. would you, in the yeah. future just be listening. So it's Peter dot. Kular, K-U-L-L-A-R, at newcastle.ac.uk. And again, Dr. Kular is particularly interested in patients with antibiotic-associated deafness and or the A1555G mutation. So if you are a patient um, that fits that, please do reach out to Dr. Kular. And Dr. Kular, we still are so thankful and appreciative of your time and this excellent lecture today. Thank Thank you you so much. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much. Everyone have a great rest of the month and join us again in May. Dr. Fry from Arkansas will be speaking to us about autism and mito and his latest research, so we look forward to that. And Dr. Kular, thank you again. Appreciate it. You did a fantastic job explaining this today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hello.